like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Maybe you've heard this quote from Lily Tomlin. I always wanted to be somebody, but I should have been more specific. Most people would agree that they want to be somebody. And what's our definition of somebody? It's to be unique and separate and different from everybody else. And yet, if you watch the way people attempt to become somebody, it's by being like everybody else and pleasing everybody else and going along with everybody else, which is why when people get to be somebody, they typically say, I should have been more specific. What kind of somebody do you want to be? This morning in Daniel chapter 3, we're going to see three somebodies. Their names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You probably know them better by their Babylonian names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were somebodies. In fact, 2,500 years later, we are still emulating them, not because they became like everybody else, and not because they went along with everybody else, but because they went 180 degrees in the opposite direction. With incredible external pressure to conform to the status quo, they didn't bow. You know, decisions we make in life are dictated by one of two things, either external pressures or internal principles. That's the battle we always face. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, we're told that the world is trying to squeeze us into its mold. What's that? External pressures. And what is the thing that counteracts that? Paul says we are to be renewed in our mind. What's that? Internal principles. Do we do what we do because we have convictions or because we feel the pressure from the outside? This morning, I would like us to be specific about the kind of somebodies we want to be as we view the lives of three somebodies in Daniel chapter 3. Now this chapter is a narrative and so I want to break it down into eight sections. The first section is the ceremony in verses 1 to 3. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar got all his, his designers and masons and goldsmiths together and they erected a statue now, this was not like the pigeon-blessed statues that we see in the public parks. It was 60 cubits by 6 cubits. That is, it was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. Now, that's a ratio of 10 to 1. The average person is a ratio of 5 to 1. So this is a very skinny, tall statue. It was made of gold. In all likelihood, it wouldn't be solid gold because that would be so heavy you couldn't even erect it. It's probably made out of wood and plated with gold. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 19, we're told that that's the way the, the pagan idols were made. It was set up in the plain of Dura, which is about six miles southeast of Babylon. In fact, the French archaeologist Julius Aupere uncovered a large brick platform on the plain of Dura, 45 feet square, 
and 20 feet tall, which he believes was the foundation for this very image. Now, why do you think Nebuchadnezzar didn't set up the image right in the city of Babylon? Why did he go six miles away to set up this image? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, he didn't want it to be overshadowed by the magnificent buildings in Babylon. They had beautiful gold-plated buildings there. They had the hanging gardens, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. And so he wanted to move away from that glory to have glory all to himself as he erected this image in the plain of Dura. And secondly, he needed that space for all the people to assemble around it. Notice verse 2. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Nebuchadnezzar plans a dedication service for his image, and the guest list includes all the cream of Babylonian society. All the various leaders in his well-organized bureaucracy are invited. Now, what is Nebuchadnezzar trying to do here? Well, number one, he's got a political agenda. Perhaps he remembers from Daniel's interpretation of his dream that the weakness of the following kingdoms was in their division. And so he wants to make a grand show of unity here on the plain of Dura, politically. Secondly, he's got a religious agenda. He knows that religion can also split an empire. And so he wants everybody to come together in one place on their knees together before one image. And then thirdly, he's got a personal agenda. He is essentially building a replica of the dream that he had in chapter 2, only he changes that. Because in chapter 2, only the head was of gold, and Daniel said, you are the head of gold. And so Nebuchadnezzar builds this statue, and it's all gold. What's he saying? There's nobody coming after me. I am the whole statue. He was egotistical. He is essentially going to be the ultimate somebody. And we're not told in this passage, but I assume this statue is made in his likeness. Maybe he was a little overweight, and so he made it very thin to compensate for that. But he makes this image of himself. He invites everyone there. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that this image is 60 cubits by 6 cubits, two sixes. Because in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 18, we're told that 6 is the number of man. Seven is the number of perfection. Man always falls short of that. And it's interesting to me that the first king of the times of the Gentiles erects an image, has everyone bow down to it or die. And the last king of the times of the Gentiles will erect an image and require that everyone bow down to it or die. And in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 18, we're told that his number is six, six. And so Nebuchadnezzar is a picture to us of the coming Antichrist. Look at verse 3. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now that sounds a little redundant because he names all these leaders in verse 2. He could have just said, and they all came. But he renames them all in verse 3, and I think he wants to underline this fact that everybody who was anybody was there. In fact, there's only one person missing in chapter 3, and that's Daniel. 
You won't find him mentioned in chapter 3. And I know he was not on his knees before the image, so where was he? Well, some people say that because he had such a high rank in the province of Babylon, that he wasn't required to make this public display of loyalty, so he might have sat near the king and not been involved. That may be. Others have suggested that he may have been sick. In fact, in chapter 8 and verse 27, we read that Daniel had a vision that left him sick and bedridden for days. So he couldn't serve the king during that time. But I think the best solution is probably the fact that Daniel was absent from Babylon at this time on some business for the king. He's not here. But whatever reason he's not there, it heightens the pressure on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because in the first two chapters, you get the impression that Daniel is the leader of this foursome. In fact, you might even get the impression, the impression that they're sort of riding on his coattails. So when we get to chapter 3, Daniel's out of the way, which really causes their mettle to be tested in a big way in this chapter. Which brings us to the second point, and that is the command in verses 4 to 7. Then the herald loudly proclaimed... To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Now there was only one criteria for being a herald, and that is you had to have a loud voice. He shouts out to this huge crowd and gives them the message from the king. And what I want you to notice here is the external pressure that came to bear on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The first piece of pressure I call authority pressure. He says to them, this is a command of the king. It's not a suggestion that you bow down. It's a command coming from the ultimate monarch, the king of kings. He says, do it. So the first piece of pressure would be, this is a command. Second pressure was what I call audio pressure in verse 5. He says the cue to bow down is music. So he's got the royal orchestra there. And they're going to play, they're going to serenade you as you bow down to the idol. Now it's interesting that he lists the types of instruments here. He says there was a horn, which would be equivalent to the ram's horn played in Israel. A flute, which comes from a root word meaning to whistle. A lyre was a harp. A trigon was a triangular shaped high-sounding stringed instrument. A psaltery was a low-sounding stringed instrument. A bagpipe was an early version of what we know today. And then he says all kinds of music, which would be a reference to other instruments not specifically listed. Now that's an interesting conglomerate of instruments. You've got everything from a harp to, harp to a bagpipe. I don't know what that would sound like. But I assume that this is mood music. This is the kind of music that would make you want to get on your knees, you know? It's just kind of soothing, kind of just sets the mood, and so we've got this external pressure coming in, the term, in terms of a command. It's also coming in terms of nice, soothing music that sets the mood. There's also a third kind of peer pressure, or kind of pressure, and that is physical pressure in verse 6. It says, but whoever does not fall down in worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. The plain of Dura was essentially a desert. And so my first question was, why would you have a furnace out in the middle of a desert? 
maybe two reasons. Number one, they had to melt that gold somehow to make this statue. So this furnace may have been part of the process of constructing the image. Secondly, it may have been brought in exclusively to add some incentive so that people would bow down. At any rate, that's what it's being used for at this point in time. If you don't bow down, you go into the furnace. Physical pressure. Fourth kind of pressure is peer pressure. Notice verse 7. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. When the music starts, there's not a mixed reaction. Most people make decisions on the basis of external pressure. It's true today. It was true then. They, verse 7 says, all bow down to this image. Now, this is heavy-duty peer pressure because this is not everybody in my class is doing it. This is everybody in the world is doing it. There are people there from every nation, every language. All the leaders are gathered together. They are all on their faces in the dust before this image, except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then there's one final form of pressure, and that's visual pressure. If you notice in verse 7, it says they worship the golden image. We're reminded again that this image was 90 feet tall. It was made out of gold. And it's sitting out in a desert place where the sun is shining on it. So you can imagine, it's, it's a bright, gleaming thing out there in the middle of the desert. Impressive sight. You know, today we see high-rise buildings all the time and don't think twice about it. They weren't used to that in that day. So to see this 90-foot tall image made out of gold was wow. And so the pressure was visual as well. Pressure was intense. For their eyes... They saw the gold. They saw everyone around them bowing down. They saw the fire. For their ears, they heard the command, and they heard the music. A lot of pressure there. Athanasius was one of the early church fathers. He fought for doctrinal purity in the 4th century A.D. The story is told that someone came to him and said, Athanasius, don't you know that the emperor is against you? The bishops are against you. The church is against you, and the whole world is against you. And Athanasius answered and said, Then I am against the whole world. And that became a phrase that was coined in the early church, Athanasius against the world. It may come to that. It did for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Everybody else bowed down except these three. Which brings us to the conspiracy, verses 8 to 12. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. Now, the Chaldeans are the wise men. These are the fellows in chapter 2 that could not interpret the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. We're told here that they came and they brought charges. That phrase literally means to eat the pieces of. It's a word used to describe how an animal would tear the flesh off its prey. And so as they come to bring charges, they're not just doing this in a legal way, they're doing this in a malicious way. Why would they be malicious? Well, I think the answer is found in the fact that they are jealous of these three. Back at the end of chapter 2, we're told that Daniel became 
the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were promoted along with him. And I think that comes out in the way they respond in verse 9. It says, They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You yourself, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image, but whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. That's what you said. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Now, they cloak their motive in a guise of loyalty to the king, but their real motive comes out at the beginning of verse 12 because it says, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon. They know exactly what their rank is in Babylon because they're envious of them. And then they accuse them of three things. They say they have disregarded you, they do not serve your gods, they do not worship the golden image. They don't obey you, they don't serve your gods, they don't worship your image. In fact, the form of this accusation is almost a rebuke to the king himself. You have appointed these men as leaders and they won't bow down. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to see this coming. I mean, they are standing in a sea of people who are bowing before the image. They stick out like a sore thumb. How is it that with all this external pressure, they can stand alone in that crowd? Well, the answer is because they had internal principles. Now, let me tell you something. They didn't make this decision on the plain of Dura that day. They made it long before that. When they first got to Babylon, they, along with Daniel, purposed in their heart that they weren't going to defile themselves with the king's food. All the other Jewish teenagers said, ah, food's not that big a deal. You know where the other Jewish teenagers are in chapter 3? They're down in the dirt worshiping the golden image. Jesus said in Luke 16, 10, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. What you do in the little things is what you will do in the big things. Those other 70 Jewish teenagers said, food's not that big a deal. All we're doing is breaking the dietary law. It's a little thing. But what are they doing two chapters later? They are breaking the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me. In contrast, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said it may be a little thing, but we're drawing the line where the Word of God draws the line. And in chapter 3, when everybody else bows down, they're still standing do you want to stand the big test? Then start building those internal principles into your heart in the little tests of life. Fourth point, the coercion, verses 13 to 15. Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and anger gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. 
Nebuchadnezzar's response was all that the Chaldeans hoped for. He got angry. He brought these three before him. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? He's angry, but he's just. He brings them before him and he says, Is it true? Now, if you'll notice, he doesn't even wait for an answer. Instead, he says he's going to give them a second chance. Verse 15, now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you will not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? A woman heard a knock at her front door and when she went there she found a kind of destitute man standing there and he said he would like to earn some money by doing odd jobs. She said, well, can you paint? And he said, I'm a pretty good painter. And so she gave him a gallon bucket of green paint and a brush and she said, I want you to go up behind the house and you'll see a porch that needs repainting. I want you to be real careful and when you're done, I'll look it over and I'll pay you what I think it's worth. Less than an hour later, he's knocking on the door again, and he says, I'm all finished. She says, well, did you do a good job? And he says, yes, I did. But there's one thing I need to tell you. That's not a Porsche back there. It's a Mercedes. Sometimes, sometimes the message we give is not the message that's received. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar assumes on this occasion. He says, well, maybe you didn't get it clear. So we're going to start the band again. And when you hear the message, you bow down. And this is not optional. It's worship or burn. And then to add a little incentive at the end of verse 15, he says, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands. Now, he's got a short memory, doesn't he? Back in chapter 2 and verse 47, he's saying, Surely your God is a God of gods, a Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries. Now he's saying, No God can deliver you from my hands. What's that all about? Well, in chapter 2, he's intellectually saying that God is a God of gods, but nothing's happened in his heart. Because he's still got a heart problem. His heart is full of pride. And God's going to deal with that in chapter 4 of Daniel. But for now, he's got himself right back on the throne of the universe again. And he's saying, what God can deliver you from my hands? Verse, or that brings us to the next point, which is the courage in verses 16 to 18. Notice verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this. Now, that almost sounds a little sarcastic, but it's not. What they're essentially saying is, we don't have a defense. We don't need to say anything because we don't have any excuses. We can't say that we didn't understand the instructions. We can't say that we didn't hear the music. We heard it all. And we're not here to work out a compromise. We're not going to say, well, how about if we bow halfway? How, do, how about if we pretend to pick up our pencil? There's no compromise here. We don't have anything to say except this. And verses 
17 and 18 record probably the most courageous statements ever uttered. Verse 17, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. That's their answer to his question at the end of verse 15. What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? They say, our God is able to deliver us out of your hands, and he will. But notice verse 18. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love that statement. They not only have faith that is courageous, they have faith that is submissive. God is able and God will deliver us, but if he, even if He doesn't, we're still not going to bow. I love that. They understand that God's will may not always be pleasant for me. And they say, even when it's not, we're going to accept it. Their faith is not contingent upon what God does. Their faith is in the person of God. And I think we need to learn from this because there are a lot of people today who only worship God when He gives us the goodies. We need to find the object of our affection in God Himself, not in what He gives us. And we ought to be able to worship Him even when things aren't going well. Oh, it's easy to worship Him when His face is shining and He's blessed us and everything's going well in our lives. How about those times when it seems like we can't find His face? When He seems to be hidden behind the clouds, when He's not answering our prayer the way we want Him to. They say, we're not going to bow even if He doesn't deliver us. I love that. Job said in Job 13, 15, Though He slay me, I will trust in Him. Real faith is taking a stand for God even when I don't have a guarantee that He's going to deliver me. I love the closing verses of Hebrews chapter 11 because there it says, beginning in verse 33, that some people by faith were delivered. And then later in the chapter it says, some people by faith died. In fact, specifically it says, some people by faith were delivered from the edge of the sword, and some people by faith were put to death with the sword. Both had faith. You see, I believe God when He delivers me, and I believe God even when He doesn't. Some of us are like the kamikaze pilot who flew 50 missions. We're only willing to go if it's safe. But see, there's no faith in that. We have to say with Paul in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Stuttered Kennedy was a chaplain during World War II. He was often thrust into the front lines of battle, ministering in places that brought danger to his life. And one day as he was going through France, he wrote a letter to his young son. This is what he said. The first prayer I want my son to learn to say for me is not, God, keep daddy safe, but God, make daddy brave. And if he has hard things to do, make him strong to do them. Son, life and death don't matter, but right and wrong do. Daddy dead is daddy still. 
But daddy dishonored before God is something too awful for words. I suppose you would like to put in a bit about safety too, and mother would like that, I'm sure. Well, put it in afterwards, for it really doesn't matter nearly as much as doing what is right. Now, we all agree with that in church. We say, amen. But how about tomorrow at work? And how about next week at your in-laws? And how about the next time you're pressured to bow down? Maybe for you it's not the fiery furnace. Maybe it's the pink slip or the loss of a promotion or being ostracized by your friends. When Martin Luther went to appear before King Charles V to be excommunicated, on his way to what's known as the Diet of Worms, he said this, My cause shall be commended to the Lord, for he lives and reigns and preserved the three Hebrew children in the furnace of the Babylonian king. If he is unwilling to preserve me, my life is a small thing compared with Christ. Expect anything of me except flight or recantation, I will not flee, much less recant, so may the Lord Jesus strengthen me. Fifth point, or sixth point, I'm sorry, the consequences, verses 19 to 23. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Nebuchadnezzar was angry before, now he is filled with rage. And it tells us specifically that his face changed. He became red and contorted. And then he was reasonable before, but now he does something really stupid, which angry people often do. He says, I want you to heat the fire seven times hotter. Now, if he really wanted to torture them, what would he do? He'd cool it down seven times. But he wants to do it big time. And so he says, heat it up seven times, verse 20, and he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Nebuchadnezzar is a man of superlatives. He's got a, the biggest image, the most expensive medal, the most lavish dedication. Everybody's there. There's a grand orchestra. The punishment for disobedience had to be the most terrifying thing he could think of a fiery furnace, and if that weren't enough, he heats it up seven times hotter. He gets the strongest soldiers to tie them up and throw them in. Verse 21. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes, and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Normally criminals were stripped before execution, but in the haste of this operation, their, their clothes are left on. And so they're dressed to kill. Verse 22, for this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These soldiers who carried them there were consumed by the fire. You say, well, why didn't they back away? Because if they backed away from fulfilling it, they would have been killed anyway. So they went forward, they were killed, and it says in verse 23, but these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Now, from Nebuchadnezzar's standpoint, this was supposed to be the end of the story. And we're not told what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thinking, but they had to be thinking at least one thing. 
And that is, if God is going to deliver us, He's not going to save us from the fire. He's going to save us through the fire. And I find that that's typically the way God operates. He often doesn't save us from the fire. He saves us through the fire. Which brings us to the seventh point in this passage, and that is the companion in verses 24 and 25. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He responded and said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound in the midst of the fire? And they answered the king and said, Certainly, O king. He wants to confirm. Wasn't it three men we put in there? And they say, Yes. Verse 25, he answered and said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Several things astounded him. Instead of three, he sees four. Instead of being bound, they're loose. Instead of burning up, they're unharmed. Instead of lying down, they're walking around. Instead of looking for the exit, they're staying in there. And the fourth person, he says, looks like a son of the gods. Now, who is this fourth person? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, says he's like a son of the gods. In verse 28, he calls him an angel. We can't put a whole lot of stock in his interpretation. But I think we would have to say it's one of two individuals. It's either an angel or it's the pre-incarnate son of God come to visit in the Old Testament, which he often did. I tend to think it's the second of those two. God had permitted the men to be cast into the dreadful furnace, but in doing so, he had literally gone in with them. God let them go in the fire, and then God went in and met them there, right in the middle of the fire. Isn't that good? You know, there's a verse in 1 Peter 4.14. It says, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When we are reviled, when we suffer for Christ's sake, there's a special promise that the presence of God is with us in a special way. The hotter the fire, the sweeter the fellowship. Eighth and final point, the commendation. Verse 26, Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire, he responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. I get the impression they weren't even planning on coming out. You know, they're in there fellowshipping with the Lord, and he comes and calls them out, and they come out. Verse 27, And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of those men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor was their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Their bodies weren't harmed, their hair wasn't even singed, their clothes were not burned. In fact, they didn't even smell like fire. The only thing that was destroyed in the fire were the ropes that bound them. And they were now free. Verse 28, or 40, 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. This day was set aside as a day of dedication to the image. It turned out to be a day of dedication to God. 
verse 29. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. It became a crime to say anything against the God of Israel. Verse 30. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. Three things happened in these final verses because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't bow to external pressure. Number one, their God was exalted. One minute this loudmouth king is saying, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace and your God can't help you. And the next minute he's saying, Blessed be your God, He is the most high. Their God was exalted. Secondly, their testimony was enhanced. People see us when we're in the fire. It's easy to be a Christian when everything is going well, but when the fire gets hot, people watch us. And their testimony was enhanced. In fact, can you imagine? that It'd be all around the world. They'd be saying, did you hear about the new law? You can't say anything against the God of Israel. Why not? Well, let me tell you about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their testimony went throughout the world. And then the third thing that happened was that their influence was enlarged. When they refused to bow down to that image, essentially they were saying, we're letting go of everything. What happened? They ended up getting everything back plus more. The last verse says, King Nebuchadnezzar caused them to prosper. It's good. You know, I hear people say today that the temptations and pressure are greater now than they've ever been. I don't really buy that. Because these three guys were separated from their parents 800 miles away. They were living in a pagan, corrupt culture, and they had a fiery furnace. Now, I don't think it gets any greater than that. And I am convinced it's time that we stop making excuses and start becoming the kind of people whose decisions are dictated not by the external pressures, but by our internal principles. One of the early martyrs for Christ was Jerome of Prague. When the executioner went behind him to set fire to the pile where he was chained, Jerome said, Come here and kindle the fire before my eyes. For if I had dreaded such a sight, I would never have come to such a place when I had free opportunity to escape. And the fire was kindled in front of him, and he began to sing a hymn that was soon finished by the flames that consumed him. When we are committed to live and die that way, we will start becoming the kind of somebody we will really want to be.